1: Hello, I'm Helen. And I'm Stephen. And this is the New Statesman podcast. Stephen, do we have to talk about Europe?
0: No, no. The good news is, uh, uh, despite the fact that I am once again talking about Europe in this month's magazine, and an MP did actually this text me... This week's magazine. This week's magazine texted me <laughs> saying I was becoming one of the crazy Europe people. Uh, oh, we're not going to talk about it this week on the podcast. Instead, we're going to talk about the Vice, uh, sorry, the Vice News... Uh, documentary uh one of their pr's emailed to ask that we would change the reference for vice to vice news
1: i'm going to call it news vice instead
0: news vice this is some great viral marketing we've got going exactly. on for that's vice how news.
1: gonzo i am is that i don't even respect that what they want to be called but yeah so
0: so vice have actually a very good very tightly put together documentary um on jeremy corbyn i only appreciated how well put together it was when i thought to see are the. Because my suspicion is these programs always reflect badly on the politicians who do. You
1: them. watch that Gordon Brown one with the weird specky Ed Balls yeah. and, and weird specky Ed Miliband when they're like both 12 running around in some office in the houses, like the House of Commons, right? Yeah. Yeah, it's um, kind of amazing, isn't it? They're all like, like on telex machines or something like that, and you think, how long ago was this? Um, anyway, yeah, but the point about it is they're all phenomenally brainy in this super nerdy way in that yeah. Gordon Brown documentary, right? What you mostly see is a team of slightly socially maladroit people who have nonetheless a very good grasp of figures and are really excited by lines on, like, a spreadsheet. Yeah. That's Uh, not what you get from the Jeremy Corbyn documentary, is it?
0: No, although one thing I will say is, so a lot of the criticism, fairly, in terms of the finished programme, and this is actually true of both documentaries, is not they are very male-heavy. The amusing thing, in both cases, the reason why they're male-heavy is not that the staff at the time were that male-heavy, it's in the women who worked for them on both occasions... Well, like, yeah, I think this documentary is going to be a car crash. Oh, okay, so Anne Lee's Anne Lee's Midgley is uh, deputy chief of staff, and Simon Fletcher, who's obviously not a woman, but he's chief of staff. Uh, my understanding isn't both of them were like, eh, eh. and um, oh god, uh, one of the women who's glimpsed but doesn't speak, um, Cat Fletcher. My understanding mm-hmm. is she was also a bit leery about. Um,
1: Because I did one of that, and I thought there were several explanations for it as well. And I thought the other one could be just that actually the men in the team speak more in meetings. This is a not unknown phenomenon in mixed gender groups. And also, you know, it's often done by seniority as well. So, uh, you know, so for example, you'll note that whenever I talk in the office, you always listen to me and don't start looking at your phone or checking Twitter.
0: That's true. That I is you
1: know. <laughs> that is a thing that everyone will notice. And I'm sure that the same applies to, um, to Seamus Milne, who is kind of nominally running that communications unit. And so as I understand it, it was his idea that they bring the film crew in. My question is, what did he think was going to happen? Like, what was the story that he thought was going to come out of it?
0: So... <laughs> So Vice is a big part of, well, actually no, Vice is a small part of their big media strategy, which is that the Labour leadership, rightly, in my view, uh, believes that Facebook will be as important, will be second in importance only to the BBC in the 2020 election uh, in terms of its capacity to reach voters. And so uh, they are putting a lot of the, the eggs in the barrel of content that appears and is shared via facebook
1: but the question i have about that is so if you look at the median attention time for people on facebook videos well it's hard to work out anyway because facebook counts anything that plays for more than three seconds as a video view and obviously lots of stuff does that as it auto plays past in your feed but that documentary is half an hour long you know i kind of have thought that they'd want bite-sized shareable i bet i am just written a piece about snapchat for somewhere else and watching the videos on there is amazing are you even on snapchat yeah i'm on the snapchat yeah Okay. Uh, I, I don't have anyone to Snapchat with. That's the saddest. I've, I've joined the Snapchat now. Okay, I could send you photos of my house, if that would be... That's all I really have to photograph. Oh, I photographed a pug on the train this morning. I could send you that on Snapchat. So this like, is
0: basically, you're going to use it to abuse millennials. That's what you're planning to do with Snapchat.
1: I'm going to upset them by showing them things that they can't have. Like, oh, yeah. look at my garden.
0: <laughs> you know, why don't you just uh, you know start emailing your pension to people?
1: Now, well, we both know that us, we both have similarly sad <laughs> pensions. <laughs> so so don't worry, listeners. Copy. We will
0: be doing this podcast until we die. Um,
1: <laughs> anyway, yeah. So back to back, back to Jeremy Corbyn, and uh, who is very. This is a good thing. Useful information that I can crowbar in it. Jeremy Corbyn is very good on Snapchat. Right, they do stories. It's kind of fun. It it hits that like. Uh, I was going to say cuddly grandpa thing, but a sort of slightly adorably confused old man doing ute things.
0: Yeah, actually when I... Which young
1: people kind of love.
0: When I joined Snapchat, I didn't really understand it, so I spent a lot of time looking at Jeremy Corbyn's Snapchat in order to understand how to do it better, uh, which was a depressing point, seeing as I think I am basically only just over a third of jeremy corbyn's age so i feel if anything but if he ever wants to be shown around instagram i can show him a thing or two
1: i think it would be weird if jeremy corbyn's instagram was entirely pictures of your wife
0: it could be pictures of his wife pictures true it's
1: true pictures of his baking and his wife but as we know from the documentary he's not very good at housework we do yes what else have we learned from the documentary
0: Uh, Seamus does not have a poker face.
1: No, there is an amazing moment where it's... what. So it's the weekend after Ian Duncan Smith's resignation. So Ian Duncan Smith resigns. And it depends... It's an interesting political calculation, right, that they had to play. Ian Duncan Smith resigns saying, I've found out that these benefit reforms are really cruel. Mm. So you have a a decision to make then as a Labour leader, do you go, oh, ho, ho, you've only really just found out that now? Or do you take it as being sincere and say, we're glad that Ian Duncan Smith has finally acknowledged what we've been saying for a long time, which is that, you know, this has really hurt disabled people, um, people who don't have anywhere else to go. This isn't about austerity. This has been done for other reasons that are cruel. They kind of wavered between the two of those over the weekend. I personally think the better way to do it would be to take it at face value. And then, because ultimately what you want to do is land the idea that these were cruel... And didn't need to be done in this, this way because no one wants to feel that they are kicking disabled people in the face. Mm. But people want to, you know, are quite receptive to the idea that, well, actually, we do need to save some money. We can't keep going on giving out handouts. So Ian Smith gives you the perfect cover to say, well, actually, this wasn't about um, about trimming the, the budget. This was, a, you know, this was an ideological attack. Jeremy Corbyn doesn't do that. He decides instead that he's going to use the Prime Minister's speech to the House and his response to it to make a speech about the refugee crisis. Poor old Seamus Mill, formerly Guardian commentator, on loan from the Guardian for a year as Director of Communications, writes a speech that has... It's mostly about refugees, right? But has a couple of lines at the end about um, how cruel the government... This is a government that is very cruel. Yeah. Uh, and Jezza of Corbyn, in his infinite wisdom, says, yeah, I don't I don't think it's really very sporting to attack the government, because, you know, what about these refugees? And there is a moment where there is a shameless side eye that could melt, like you know, jet fuel can't melt steel beams. That side eye could melt steel beams, right?
0: Yeah, I mean, it's one of those. It is one of those fascinating moments because it suddenly made me think. Not that I have ever uh, been frustrated with a decision taken in a meeting at the New Statesman, but there has never obviously been a camera on my face when a decision has not gone away. I've liked, and so you suddenly think, wow. I mean. I know I don't have a very good poker face. How am am I sitting there side-eyeing in these meetings, which never happen, obviously, um, doing exactly that? And so it is wonderful.
1: Uh, Okay, but if we were to role-play and someone said, Oh, Stephen, actually, I think your pieces are good, but I don't think it's the cover this week. Could you, Yeah, even now, even now, yeah. even in the simulated, you couldn't stop your eyebrows going up. And there's another way that uh, Seamus Milne's got uh, him, well, himself really in, in trouble here, which is that, and a bit that was after an interview, but their is obviously still rolling. I presume he was still mic'd up, actually. Yeah. Um, so he then says, or oh, someone in the team has been leaking about one in three of our PMQ's lines of attack. Do you, do you think there is a mole, a <laughs> smiley style? Is there a mole? I mean... It's a hell of a betrayal of a thing to do if you're in the leader's office with people who are working really hard, you know, and particularly where, when you sort of know that the press is really hostile to you, to the Tories. I can see you leaking it to another faction of Labour, maybe, but to David Cameron?
0: I mean, my instinct is that there isn't a mole. I mean, like, also, like, it's not difficult to guess what the leader of the opposition is going to go on. Uh, most Except of
1: sometimes the. it is because, you know, you go like, why haven't you asked any questions about forced academisation? Why are you going on about blah, blah X, Y and what Rita from, from Snetworth thinks?
0: OK, I'm going to amend that. It shouldn't be difficult to yeah. guess. Um, one of the reasons to continue my uh, dull running theme of uh, evangelising for the effectively abandoned format of, you know, Bob from lower Bobbington, yeah. uh, was the reason why that was effective. It was a really good way of asking about, say, forced academisation, but in a way where Cameron doesn't know what's going to happen to Bob, right? If at the start Bob is saying... Oh, yeah, my, my there's a local
1: school that I think is really good. At the and end it, it could turn out that his child has died because of a lack of a school place, right?
0: Yeah, or well, I was going to say he has had to mortgage his house in order to move into a different catchment area, but his child dying because of a lack of a school place is equally plausible, I suppose. Um but um but yeah it's not hard to guess and my 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 instinct is it would be very surprising to me i mean partly because it's not like there's a large degree of social overlap between the people in that meeting and um yeah you'd
1: have to walk out of that meeting pretty much on a wednesday morning and like phone someone yeah and tell them and i just think i just think that, i don't think if you the only thing I'm trying to think of that like the motive behind that is i can sort of imagine someone in his office Maybe helping out, uh, you know, a, essentially a rival in the Labour Party. But why would you help out but I, the Tories?
0: I also think that there's a... There's a because they, uh, one of the other interesting vignettes involves Andrew Fisher, who is kind of policy czar and kind of Corbyn's special advisor, who Corbyn thinks incredibly highly of. At one point... Um, is this when pract- he's rude about George? Because no, no, I would not- like
1: to say, if you're listening to this, Andrew Fisher, you know... George might look like a monk, but he... he I mean, That guy's not, got guns. I have seen yeah. his
0: arms. Like, George Eaton is stacked. Yeah. The man is a machine. He will... I mean, you don't want him as your enemy. You know, he drinks uh, green
1: tea and dry toast, and then he rose. But, you know, he, he's relentless. He's like Terminator.
0: Um, But... Not that bit, then. But anyway, uh, no. I was thinking of the bit where uh, Fisher is asked to um, act as Corbin's, uh, to act as David Cameron, and Corbin says, "Yeah, you've you've achieved a high honour. And Andrew Fisher goes, "Like, well, it's not that high an honour to be David Cameron." And the thing about Cameron is because he's a, ach- he, in many ways, he is like the right-wing Wilson. And then because he's achieved very little from a policy perspective, it's very easy to forget that Cameron is actually quite good at the the low politics of it and i think then if your basic analysis of cameron is oh he's a bit rubbish he's a bit of a chancer then maybe i can see how your expectation for him being able to do that kind of commons debating thing very well on his feet is that there must be a mole. but yeah. i mean this is a guy who he went to like a posh school which did debating he went to a posh university which did debating and now he has a job where he does debating i mean like no wonder he's he's a master debater I'm really sorry, listeners. Um, okay,
1: I hope you didn't do that whole bit just to lead up to that.
0: Uh, pretty much, yeah.
1: Yeah, but I, no, I agree with you about Cameron in the sense that actually now we're seeing how, to me, totally unbelievably deep these splits over Europe are. You know, people have been cradling these grievances for twenty long years mm. to have kept the party together, particularly when it looked like UKIP was a really big Tory threat. Right, it was just going to look like yeah. it was just going to take a massive bleeding chunk out of the right flank of the Tory party is revealed now to have been you know a a relatively big achievement I kind of go back to that assessment he had of himself which was that he was the chairman not the CEO and I think that is right in that I agree with you his policy agenda has been far from dynamic but his management of the party in the country has not well let's put it this way more millions more people voted for him than for Ed Miliband and that's the other thing I think is is you know is for all the sort of chortling about how he how easy it was for him to get there, unfortunately, people did pick him.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think there is this this weird thing that we kind of do forget. Like, this is a guy who got two million more votes than Ed Billamander, and two million more votes than Gordon Brown. Yeah, you're just um, saying that
1: two million more people, you know, didn't you know, didn't didn't know what they were talking about, which I think is probably an unhelpful attitude to take um, towards voters.
0: What else happened? We probably should reveal for the benefit of listeners who have not watched the Vice News documentary. News Vice. News Vice um, uh, what the sick burn towards uh George Eaton, uh, who is uh, not away, planning to kill Andrew Fisher but on holiday? He, he,
1: yeah, well, well, he might be though. Um, do you put money on that? He's relentless, like he the is Terminator. Relentless. Yeah, I mean. He- so they, they're watching PMQs, and they're, this, is the, this is the other thing that I kind of is a running theme from this documentary. So they see, they want to know how well it's gone, and then they say, we're getting some tweets in now. You know, George Eaton said it's, it's the best one ever, but ooh, what's his judgment like? Oh, and then, now, and they're, oh, actually, you know, Paul Wall said it as well. Oh, And this is the thing I don't understand this, is that the sort of rancid ingratitude of, of, of this sort of expecting that the left-wing press will be on your side and then particularly hating them in the north. not. I think it's really interesting. There's a bit where Corbyn says the BBC are obsessive in covering him. And you're kind of like, well, yeah, I mean, it's literally several people's jobs to write about things that you do. That's kind of how being leader of the opposition works. Or there's a bit where, um, there's a bit on the phone, obviously, between Seamus Milne and Jeremy Corbyn, where they're criticising Jonathan Friedland, the Guardian's uh, columnist, about his piece saying there is a problem with anti-Semitism on the left. And they say it's disgusting. You know, and he's not a not a good man or something like that, which is a bit you know below the belt. You know, Johnny Friedland's quite a respected commentator. has been writing about you know Judaism and and, and anti-Semitism in Britain for a long time. You know, it's not this is not a, he's not opportunistically hopped on board this bandwagon uh, to just to make criticisms of a particular Labour leader. This is something that he's demonstrated a commitment to throughout his career. But they don't. I haven't. I mean, I've, I watched some of it on. But my Wi-Fi connection was spotty. So uh, correct me if I missed a bit that where they criticise the Daily Mail or the Telegraph or the Sun.
0: No, but I mean, I think that yeah, that, that there is not. You know, I don't you think would... they
1: read them. Though, do they do. So the, um, one shot that's really telling is there's a doorway and there's a tray of of and it's got the Morning Star in it, and that's the, like the, that. That's obviously the paper that gets kind of delivered and read. Yeah
0: good paper. Got brilliant lower league and women's football coverage.
1: It's funny enough, you know, on on coverage of, of gender, it is. It's really un- it we'll print stuff that the Guardian is too afraid to, of, of, to print. Uh, that is, yeah. Uh, yeah. So I know I, I don't mock the existence of the Morning Star, but I do think it is a, an alarming. There's a bit also after the terrible speech about refugees that they take the criticism of the government out of. There's a bit where one of the staff applauds him, and that reminds me of, of something that Steve Richards wrote in a column for us about Ed Miliband coming back from a mediocre speech and his staff applauding him. I and I think to
0: boost his confidence. Oh God, I'd, it, I. It's, and you it's, wrote I'd,
1: about it at the time, didn't you, about Cameron yeah. saying to his staff, "What was it he said it's to?" Just his
0: like um, tell me, you know, tell me, tell, tell me the, you know, tell me what people say don't like about me. Literally attack me with the words I can't, can and can't use. I will do what I'm asked.
1: This is in debate prep. Yeah,
0: in the debate prep, as opposed to the Ed, do you have to be so negative? Kind of. Oh God, I, it, it's weird how I've repressed a lot of the things I didn't like about the Ed Miliband era.
1: Well, that's that's a good segue to say, is he coming back?
0: Is he coming back? Well, it's up in the air. Jeremy Corbyn would like him to come back. Um, he would obviously be a fairly large asset to the Corbin project in that he knows his way around a TV studio. He can be quite good at it when he kind of frees himself from this particularly unattractive Ed Miliband trait of effectively acting like he's been forced into it. Um, yeah, I
1: worry that his martyrdom plus Jeremy Corbyn's martyrdom might create some sort of black hole of like, why is everyone against me? That might sort of suck the entire universe. I entire- mean, I
0: think the the difference is, is at least Jeremy Corbyn was kind of forced into it; like it was basically his <laughs> turn to get beat get beaten in the Labour leadership race, and 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 then he won. Um, whereas Ed Miliband had to, you know, like run against you know like one of,
1: of his, one of his one of
0: his best mates, husbands, his own brother, and. Andy Burnham, uh, in in order to become leader of the Labour Party and then spent five years acting as if he, you know... As if
1: he'd got a really terrible prize at a fair that he'd had to carry around with him, yeah. Yeah.
0: Um, But he knows his way around a TV studio and, crucially, he would be someone who in the the Shadow Cabinet who is not thinking about the post-Corbyn future, which is not something you can necessarily say is true about, say, John McDonnell. But you right. He could be the
1: he could be the William Hague, yeah. He could could be be the elder statesman that isn't sort of seen to be non-partisan.
0: Yeah. Whereas otherwise, the only person they've got who knows their way around a TV studio and is absolutely loyal to Corbyn is Diane Abbott, who I have a lot more time for than many people in Westminster. But there have definitely been times when she's had to defend him on the morning show, defend him at lunchtime and defend him in the evening. And the quality of the evening interview really does show that she has defended him twice that day
1: to handbag somebody. Um, There's one thing I must ask before we finish, which is just about the messaging, right? So the big story that's kind of coming out of uh, the Corbyn documentary is about the ongoing tussle between him and the media and and don't you think at some point someone needs to say, I know I know, you feel that the media is against you. Actually, you have an enormous amount of, of of right to object. about this comes back to what you're saying about Ed Miliband. But every moment that you're saying how dreadful the BBC are, you are not saying how dreadful the Tories are, how dreadful austerity is. And that's another thing that I really got out of that Corbyn documentary is that how how little of the kind of what people loved about Corbyn when they elected him he's managing to get across because he's got mired in all this stuff and i know i'm mean, having been a veteran of many low level internet fights myself i know how tempting it is to kind of get you know get into them and stay into them but at some point doesn't he just have to kind of just park that and just become a you know a mach- an anti-austerity machine
0: yeah i mean i think so the the observation that um a senior source from the left of the party made to me about the documentary is they said, obviously the anti-Semitism stuff blew us off where we want to go, so the anti-Semitism thing erupts while they're filming. They said, but, they said, but I can't work out from watching it what, what our message would have been if that hadn't happened. And yet the problem with talking about the media is journalists are naturally self-centered and we love to talk about ourselves. So the second you talk about how the media is against you, the media talks about the media and not about your issues. My hunch is there won't be a sort of unilateral disarmament in terms of his uh, relationships with the media. But they are hiring new people and they are actually, I would say, getting a bit better at some things. Uh, To return to another one of my hobby horses on this podcast, the commercial radio point is a really good example of that so i think things will
1: but it does work for yeah. their base right yeah that's the thing is that actually you know in the same way that for, for donald trump it really works to keep the media in a pen and kind of call them scum because then it's you know it's 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 a way of offsetting the fact that people say well it's really bad that labor still haven't kind of uh, aren't doing better in the polls despite the tory party tearing themselves apart well as soon as you just say well that's what they are well that's what they would say then that becomes your iron kind of shield against criticism. And a lot of people really hate the media and really want to be told how awful and unbearable it is.
0: Yep, we are the one group of people more disliked than politicians. Us and bankers.
1: Stay agents?
0: No, no, nope, they are actually doing a bit better than us and politicians. Wow, that's,
1: yeah. uh, that's a nice note to end on. <laughs> i'm caroline and i'm anna and we host the pop culture podcast from the new statesman seriously if you secretly care more about comics than jeremy corbyn this is the podcast for you you can find all our episodes at newstatesman.com forward slash s-r-s-l-y Next, we do not have George online from the lobby because there is no—I mean, no, there is a lobby. It's still, it's, they have knocked the building down, but it's a parliamentary recess, which is why the EU debate has been even more bonkers than usual. How have you been spending the extra free time uh, that the recess has afforded you, Stephen? I've been playing Skyrim. For anybody who isn't a fan of MMORPGs, actually, they're not. It's not online, is it? It's just a massive. It's just a massive game. Skyrim is by Bethesda. It is part of their extremely popular series. It's got dragons in it, but the dragons are all male. Yeah, think about that. Are they? Yeah, all the four voices of all the dragons are all male. Don't they just like roar and cry? No, they talk to you. Uh, th- and so then I- you do your dragon shout. What character class are you on Skyrim? Um,
0: so at the moment, I am a Breton thief called Beatrice Bellamont. Um, why are
1: you a Breton? Why not? Well, no, I just think it's really interesting because uh, I I th- i always play as a female character, as a sort of like in in games that allow you to. So I played as as Shep, female Captain Shepard in yeah. uh, Mass Effect. I I've always played as a, a female Wanderer, but it's about some people have a thing where they always try and make their characters look as much like them as possible, and I have previously done that. But now I have a very cool black woman with a mohawk as my character in Fallout Three, and I made a very cool Skyrim character as one of the like leopard people. Because I thought I was being speciesist by like being oh, obviously I'm I'm not a leopard so I can't play as a leopard.
0: Um, so I th- I realised in creating characters on these kind of games where I let out my suppressed fanfic writer. Uh, so I have been one of the like cat warriors. Um, so I I mostly will play as play as a woman because mostly in these things like you're a badass you're going around like quipping and and beating people up and etc etc. I, unlike our pol-ed, do not have uh, great guns and drink a lot of green tea. Uh, so I, what I like about playing as, as female shepherd is I feel I escape into a fi- into a fictional character that I create who's very much not me.
1: Also, oh, you get a better voice actor. And yeah, and
0: also Jennifer Hale is is, is a, a brilliant voice actor and Mark Meer. Apologies if it turns out you've listened to this podcast, you're, but you're, you were far- phoning that in. So I mean, so what I've tended to do is when I romance Gareth, I will play, I kind of, because I always have this hope when you play person. he's like the the cool one, you feel they've got more in common. Caden is just such a, yeah. a spot. And also Caden is really harsh on you when you meet in the second game. He's like, oh, well, you know, get out of here you're a traitor, etc., etc., then writes you a snotty email in which he goes, yeah, I've met someone else, and then has the temerity in the third game to like, oh, you've hooked up with Gareth. It's like, damn right I hooked up with Gareth. You told me you were seeing someone else, and he was actually there for me, you big jerk.
1: you um, got some things to work through. I have a you're... lot of feelings. But the important thing is that why, as your personality type do these kind of games appeal to you because i talk to a lot of people who are nerdy about politics and they're also nerdy in the same way like they like the same kind of video games they don't necessarily like uh metal gear solids or actually that's quite a nerdy game too but you know your destinies they tend to like these sort of ones with like massive inventories or man you know lots of management lots of walking around looking at things cataloging things. So my
0: theory, and I'd be really fascinated to hear if, if there are any right-wing listeners, who I know we have some of, still listening to this section of, of the podcast. In my my theory is I think that there's something about people who are into lefty politics then they're also quite into world-building. So they... They like the kind of sprawling fact. There's a Terry Pratchett world with sort of places and maps and all of that kind of thing. There's a George R. R. Martin world. There's a Skyrim world that you can interact with and it's tangible and you can create your own character. And, um, And also I suspect that there's an element of that type of video game is enjoyable because you're using your imagination. If you're politically engaged, regardless of your politics... You've sort of got to be slightly more imaginative about the world elsewhere, and that is a very smug and self-satisfied answer as to why I'm (laughs) such a big geek. I I also
1: wonder if it's about you know just being people who are nerdy about one thing are nerdy about lots of things. So people who collect one thing often collect quite a lot of things. Yeah, but I don't have stamps. I had stamps nerd <laughs> no I understand but there's also a thing about you know the difference between empathising and systematising brains which I'm never quite buying into particularly when it's it's taken to mean male and female brains but there are, there are some sorts of people who whenever they are on a train end up wondering about how interesting it would be to look at how trains run I'm talking mostly about John Elledge but you know I, and I think those kind of things spill over into video games as well I think it's very easy to become nerdy about politics and about following the polls and about you know different things and remembering law Long lists of candidates and stuff like that, and that kind—if of, that appeals to you—then those kind of games where you have to remember lots of stuff, manage lots of stuff, are probably quite appealing to but you I too. I think it also
0: depends on that. So, with Skyrim, the reason why I have quite so many versions of it is I want to have seen all of the various quests.
1: You're a completionist as well, but then that's... but I
0: also—but I don't want the character to do quests that would feel inconsistent. So the reason why I've done Mass Effect so many times, is it's like, well, this Shepherd wouldn't leave the Rachni to die. I need to create a character who would. My My yeah. problem is
1: I can't make mean people. I had a time, and you won't probably remember Fable being only 12, but I accidentally slaughtered someone, maybe my wife, in Fable. And the whole village spent the rest of the time wondering, oh, there goes the wife killer. And it just—it I had to sort of give it up playing it for a bit because I, I felt that the judgment of these non-playable characters weighed too heavily on me.
0: No, I I always find it quite difficult to, whenever someone's like, yeah, will you fetch me some water? I always will, like, travel. Oh, the, beg-
1: the classic beggar by the side of the road.
0: Didn't, it, oh, it really upset me when I realised that Fallout, I mean, Fallout actually has quite a right-wing sort of take-home message. No matter how much water and money you give those beggars, the beggars don't ever, like, they're... <laughs> they
1: never sell a small it, business. Maybe
0: it, maybe it's quite left-wing and ultimately, like, you know, in effectively a post-state society, which is what Fallout is, mere... Acts of charity don't eradicate deep poverty, but yeah, I I have always been kind of fairly soft on that kind of thing. But I also have a moralizing streak, so you know, it, one thing which always annoys me in games is when they have an inbuilt karma meter to tell me whether or not something is is good or bad. Uh, so it always irritated me that on Fallout Three, seemingly arbitrary, if you if you decided to execute some people for being yes. lawless thugs. What I mean
1: about being quite right wing is that some people were bad people who deserve to die, right? It did believe in kind of justified killing. Yeah. Did you? I'm trying to think what other big decisions there were. What about the Krogan? Um, did you cure the genome curse? But this will mean absolutely nothing to like 90% of our listeners, but there is a... I mean, those listeners have gone, right? Yeah, okay. I mean, they're not listening to the same <laughs> but, but there is a really interesting moral dilemma in Mass Effect where this big race of like giant, I'm going to say like giant sort of weird rhinoceros kind of cockroaches. They're kind of like
0: crustacean rhinoceri.
1: Yeah. Uh, basically, they used to breed really, really, really fast and they were massively mm. strong and they were threatening to wipe everything out. So a mean race, a uh, mean scientist race, the Solari? Solarians. Solarians. I keep thinking of the Soleros, but yeah, they... They kind of came up with a genophage, which basically meant that very, very few of them were fertile anymore. And you have to decide whether or not you will reverse the genophage.
0: So uh, I, I do always uh, do that, but I mean it, it depends. One, so obviously uh, I, I've, I've, I'm haven't shot Rex because I'm not a monster. Um, He's what, a Krogan. Yeah, yeah. But what I always like to, to do is, if you, from a dramatic perspective, it's more satisfying to save Rex. But destroy the genophage data and so you have these very tense conversations with someone who used to be your buddy and then you have this wonderful scene in the tower when it's you know been sabotaged and maud in your old scientist buddy is just like well why didn't you tell me and then i always like to have her say to him i don't trust the krogan but i trust you and the idea is that he decides to cure the genophage, which I think is a nice capstone to his character. And um, yeah, I've put a lot of thought into this.
1: That's really yeah. sweet. I might go and re- replay that now. Um, if there are suggestions that any of our listeners have about great uh, video games with great political lessons in them, I am always very uh, also because i'm uh, basically at the moment all i play is hearthstone and there aren't any great political lessons i in also that. would
0: like and um, well, would welcome feedback on whether or not i am better off getting a ps4 or an xbox one i have a playstation 3 and an xbox 360 i'd quite like to play the new mass effect game and fallout 4 uh, so yeah let me know
1: <laughs> right good that's uh that's a bit of housekeeping done thanks thanks everyone
0: now welcome back to you ask us the feature in which you ask us a question it does what it says on the tin and this week's question is about the american elections again um and it is how worried are we about the fact that bernie Sanders, who is now not quite mathematically eliminated but in terms of the proportional system of allocating delegates is mathematically you know unless he starts winning by, like, Soviet margins of 92 to 8%, has lost the Democratic nomination, uh, is still in the race, is in many ways actually ratcheting up rather than ratcheting down uh, his attacks on Hillary Clinton. Yeah, how I'm, worried are we?
1: I'm really worried because I think he's doing what Trump did from the other side uh, and sort of saying that the whole... And actually what, what someone like Nigel Farage does as well, which is saying, I'm not winning, therefore the process must be illegitimate. Uh, you know, and he he's now talking about sort of flipping super delegates after having previously said that whole, he didn't thought the whole super delegate system was kind of corrupt. You know, one of the things that's quite I think is you know he's challenged Trump to a debate. This sort of weird thing where he's like going to sort of steal the fire away from the campaign, and it, it does make you remember that he wasn't you know he wasn't a de- he's not a kind of loyal lifelong Democrat. You know, he's not even as 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 loyal to the Democratic Party as, say, someone like Jeremy Corbyn was to the to the Labour Party, you know that they might have had their disagreements over the years. Jeremy Corbyn might, have, you know, flunked the whip a huge number of times, but he never left the party, and you know, I, and I don't think would do anything to that he would see would be about damaging the party. And I'm not sure I'm now not getting that from from Sanders. I'm 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 really kind of getting a feeling of kind of, you know, if I'm going down on taking everything with me, and from his supporters too, these sort of people who, who get interviewed. Do you see that one about the guy who said, um, you know, well, obviously I can't have Sanders and I'll probably vote for Trump because it'll be really interesting. Like, maybe Nazi-style interesting, but it'll be interesting.
0: I mean, so I am, I'm less relaxed about it than I was, but I'm still fairly relaxed. In the, This time, eight years ago, Hillary Clinton was equally mathematically effectively eliminated, but not quite campaigning in every primary talking about how she was more electable than uh, than Barack Obama uh warning that he could just as Sanders is going oh she might get arrested over this email scandal there is no chance and she will get arrested over this email uh, Hillary's going oh you know well we, we know then Robert Kennedy was shot at this stage in the primary um and I think this stage in American elections always starts to resemble a bit where a child has been late, let, allowed to stay up past their bedtime. Everyone gets a bit fractious. My guess is everyone gets a bit fractious because at least some of the campaign staff, particularly on the losing campaign side, know that they are very rapidly going to become unemployed. And so everyone gets a bit... Eh.
1: Yeah, I think that's probably true. Uh, but I think it's really interesting how the Republican establishment largely has, slu- has swung behind Donald Trump, right?
0: But I mean, he is mathematically the nominee.
1: Yeah, and, and, and you would expect that the same thing will happen when Clinton becomes the nominee. But that's my question. Will it or, or has old oh, is bernie sanders now sees himself as you know something bigger than politics he's the leader of a kind of popular movement and that's actually you know he, he you know that that he doesn't want to kind of be put back in his box i guess whereas ted cruz thankfully appears to have slunk off somewhere to do weird ted cruzly things i mean
0: sanders' political career has largely been spent grandstanding until doing the right thing at the last possible moment. So with the uh, Affordable Care Act, also known as Obamacare, in order to pass the filibuster, you need 60 votes. The There are lots of things in the Affordable Care Act which are not what left-wing Democrats would would ideally uh, dream of. Um, Sanders spent a lot of time very public being like, oh, this, oh, that, but then he voted for it. He voted to pass the cloture motion. He voted for the Affordable Care Act. Sanders spent a lot of time talking about running against Barack Obama, in the primary in 2012, which obviously would have taken money, resources, massively increased the chances of uh Mitt Romney becoming president, and then didn't do it.
1: So My- you think he's just going to he's just going to chow down and and fall behind Hillary? I think the other question then is about whether or not uh, you know has his campaign permanently revealed some of the flaws in Hillary as a candidate, and actually can you do anything about that? Right? Have you you know kind of. Is this an election cycle where people want big, dramatic figures making, you know, bold promises? And actually, the slightly cautious pragmatism of Hillary is therefore just not not going to kind of cut, no one's going to be fired up about it. There was a really interesting, yeah, Rebecca Traster wrote a profile, spent a couple of days on the road with her for New York Magazine. Uh, and, and we talked about this kind of, the problem with having been a politician for that long is that she is, everything is weighted, but there was one story in that that I thought was really interesting, which is that um, Hillary tells a story about when she was sitting her law school exams, right? And she was one of the very few women doing it. And there's a guy in the, in the hall who says to her, you know, you are, if you, uh, congratulations, I hope you're happy if you, you women get into law school, because if I don't, then I might get drafted for Vietnam and I might die and it'll be your fault. And I think that. That sentiment encompasses a hu- what is a huge political dynamic today, right? Which is men who are kind of not quite good enough, pretty good but not quite good enough, feeling that clever women have usurped their place in society, that they've been knocked down a level by by women. You know, that guy is not unhappy about all the other men that are going to kind of come and push him down the rankings, but it's about women because actually, you know, women don't have, weren't drafted for, for Vietnam. So one level he does have a... He does have a legitimate grievance, you know, but I think a lot of men who are involved in things like the men's rights activists, a lot of the misogynist opposition to Hillary, you know, is from people whose lives aren't perfect and they see a a rich white woman and think, well, hang on, she's got nothing to complain about.
0: Yeah, I mean, and also there's a seed of truth. It's a bit like, to to link it into a very different story bubbling over this week, which is this row within the Tory party about Cameron's plans to uh, make you disclose what school you went to in, in a job application where social mobility if it works is bad for some people there are lots of people who come from uh, capital who have lots of advantages who are without wishing to be overly mean about it thick as two planks Uh, ditto there are lots of men who benefit from not just the old boys network but from patriarchy generally who in a more right
1: in their 30s when all the women get knocked out by going off to have children they say they move steadily up the ranks yeah
0: um and obviously, the net the net number of winners is is higher, not least because you know, mostly ultimately, it's not like you're changing the number of breadwinners in a household. But um, but there are there are lo- that that is the kind of legitimate. But am grievance I not that... right
1: in thinking that uh, Donald Trump was a draft dodger? Have I made that up? Because it sounds like it's the kind of thing that would be true.
0: I can't remember... I mean, to be honest, I've reached this kind of point of Trump... Not quite Trump saturation, but where... it, Because it's so difficult to tell the difference between Trump, Trump parodies, and and also... Because I'm starting to get a little bit nervous, I still don't think he will win the general election uh, because I think that Hillary will become the nominee, Sanders will throw his arm around her, the people will unify around uh, her, even though she is... I mean, I think it probably helps that... The, the flaws with the, not just Hillary herself but the Clinton machine have kind of been stress-tested a bit, so their tendency to fire people and panic when things don't go their, their, their way, which we saw with uh, when Obama won Iowa. We saw when Sanders won um, uh, New Hampshire, etc., etc. That that wobble has probably been kind of go out of the way. And my instinct is that Hillary will be in the... Dis- interesting position of being a fairly unpopular face from the past who people don't like very much some of uh, which for sexist reasons who nonetheless will probably win not one but two presidential elections purely because the republican party have gone on this
1: My problem is I just think that with populism around Europe I think it's been too long since someone really bad got elected and really bad things happened and I just feel like we're at the downswing of the cycle that we just someone awful has got to squeak past and something really terrible has got to happen as a result for people to sort of realise like oh yeah actually electing a leader is not really most about how can I express my resentment of a system that doesn't seem to care about me or, or have much relevance in my life and actually you know, it does actually have a kind of huge amount of power. Or like, you know, or, or it not being actively bad was a was a good state of affairs.
0: There's Victor Orban in Hungary, though. Maybe Hungary is uh, taking the bullet for the rest of us.
1: Well, let's hope. So. Well, I was going to say let's hope so, but that's not very happy for <laughs> very happy hope for Hungary. Anyway, thank you for asking us about the American election. Uh, also, feel free to ask me anything about The West Wing as I continue to watch rewatch The West Wing. Uh, I'm very keen on that. <laughs> listening to the new statesman podcast presented by me helen lewis with stephen bush our producer is india bork and our music is devil with the devil by the underscore orchestra licensed under creative commons you can find us on itunes or at newstatesman.com forward slash podcast